episode of the Political Science Report. I'm your host, John Murphy, and each week on this podcast, I'll go in depth on a political science article, both historical and recent, of significance, have a lot of fun series planned. Right now, we're currently in a series on the six articles from the 2022, May 2022 issue of the APSR with the highest attention scores. And again, before we get started, I have a Twitter that you can follow, The Political Science Report, or at PolySci Report. Good place to find updates about future podcasts, about maybe who may be on future podcasts, and it's also, as I mentioned last episode, a great place to see some of the work of professors who you might not otherwise know, who aren't the most public of intellectuals, yet still do really, really important and brilliant research. So just as an ad for that. So last week we covered an article about television advertising and down-ballot elections. The first two episodes were pretty in line with each other, cousins of each other in the American political science, American politics, particular political behavior, and even more specifically around elections. So this week we're switching our, our focus a bit. It's mostly in order, but this one had an attention score of 109, and the most recent one had 108. So almost identical, but I think they fit a little bit better going in this order. So today's article is titled, Does State Repression Spark Protests? Evidence from Secret Police Surveillance in Communist Poland. As you can tell just by the title, we're going to be dealing with a very different article here. So this one is by Anselm Hagar of Humboldt, Humboldt Universität zu Berlin, Germany, and Krizistoff or Christoph Krakowski of Collegio Carlo Alberto in Italy. Hagar is an, an assistant professor of international politics and got his PhD from Columbia in 2017. He's written many articles on political engagement, mobilization, movements, and counter-movements, um, and seems to focus on more than just violence and protest within other countries. In comparison, Krakowski seems to focus more on protest, specifically an organized crime, civil conflict, in a comparative politics lens. Krakowski got his PhD in poli-sci and social sciences from Uniper European University Institute in 2018. He researches political and civil conflict, as I mentioned before. Him and Hagar, or he and Hagar, have another article in 2018, I think that's from. It's titled Ethnic Riot and Pro-Social Behavior, Evidence from Kyrgyzstan. So... Um, just another author to look through. He's done a lot of really impressive work, even though it looks like he got his PhD just a couple of years ago. And like I said, he mentioned he focuses more on conflict than just, um, than Hagar does specifically. So as you can really tell, it's going to be very different from the previous two articles, but there's still so much to learn from in terms of methods, in terms of what the substantive area is, what the history is, and how how all these things can be informed in the study of democracy in general, the study of politics in general, and how generalizable they are overall. So this is not my primary research area at all, but I'm really interested to get into it. It's a new neck of the woods in a lot of ways for me. I am aware of something what's called the repression dissent puzzle, which essentially states the puzzle of does increased repression cause increased dissent? One logical channel would say, oh, increased repression gives increased reason for people to be upset, and with people to be upset or angry, there's going to be more dissent. But another line, another channel of logic would say, oh, the greater the dissent, the higher the cost, or the greater the repression, the higher the cost of dissent or the more fear, so the less likely to dissent. And so there's a puzzle there of which which channel is more dominant. And some of this, the literature I've seen, again, I'm not by nowhere near a cousin of an expert in this field. But from what I have seen, I have seen that it's kind of dependent on situation and how you define what dissent is and what repression is and whether it's physical or violent um, or just surveillance. And so it kind of depends on the context, but that is a general push and pull 
which one is greater, repression or descent, and then what are the outcomes of that. So I am just a little bit familiar with that. And so it's just a tiny bit of background of what I know related to the topic here. So importantly, getting off, the authors distinguish between violent forms of repression and what is called physical surveillance. So this is key. And when you're doing research like this, you have to be really, really specific about what what your, what would this be in this case, what the independent variable is, how you're defining repression. And so they're not only looking at repression vaguely, they focused on physical surveillance, which is different than violent repression or maybe even violent surveillance. So physical repression, as they define it, this is how they define it, focused, systematic, and routine attention to personal details for purposes of influence, management, protection, or direction. And that definition comes from Lyon 2007 in quotations. Um, and so they're specifically focusing on this idea of governments who hire armies, legions, sometimes not that many spies that will follow people around, that will track them, that will keep track of their connections, that will maybe see who they're going to meet, what they're doing, spy on their letters, any letters that they send, what are they doing at the job. And so that's in general what physical surveillance is like. And they point out that in the Eastern Bloc, there were thousands, there were legions of informants that walked the streets, followed people, infiltrated jobs, and spied to get information that the government wanted. Very different than digital surveillance, which is, you know, um, the government listening to you through your phone or something like in China where there's facial recognition on a lot of street corners. So that would be digital surveillance. And it's kind of ruled out because we're talking about 1960 to 1989 Poland. Um, but just to be clear, this is physical surveillance in particular. Um, so there are a number of expected results of physical surveillance and how it interacts with protest. Protest being the dependent variable, the outcome that we want to measure. First, physical surveillance is effective. This is kind of, these are the general hypotheses that they're outlining and that they'll actually go on to challenge in the beginning and then by, especially by the end of the article. So first, Previous research would say physical violence is effective because it instills fear in the population and dissuades people from standing up or voicing their opinion. For if there's a high chance of being caught or found out, it creates this fear and so people don't protest because of physical surveillance. Second, physical surveillance returns usable information to authorities and so the authorities given this intel, we'll be able to intercept important people, we'll be able to stop protests before they happen, we'll be able to read letters and anticipate protests or, or organized events, strikes, things like that. And so not only are people doing it less often because they're fearful, but the government also has added information that they can use to counter, not counter protests, but counter the protests through arrests or whatever it would be. So essentially physical surveillance seems like it would be an effective means of suppressing protests, that the more physical repression, the more protests would decrease. However, and this is somewhat in line with the puzzle I mentioned earlier, that physical surveillance also increases anger within a population. This is, this is kind of their main argument here is that they're lining up, sure it increases fear, but it also, and even to a greater extent, increases anger in a population, which may lead to more protests. So imagine nowhere you can go is safe, everyone you love is being watched, your friends are being interrogated, it may make you fearful, but it might even more make you angry, resentful, bitter, vengeful against the regime. And so that's what they compare there is anger versus fear, which one is stronger, which one drives protests more. Second, on the side of stoking protests, if there's so much surveillance, they say, and quote, surveillance can provide citizens with an incentive to reveal their true loyalties given widespread social mistrust, thus facilitating anti-regime collective action, end quote. So they argue that, and this is another one of their novel hypotheses, is that 
having a lot of distrust in a culture and a society because of this repression gives incentive for people to identify or people to reveal their ultimate loyalties. So what exactly would this look like? It means that when there's overwhelming repression, you're more likely to voice your ultimate loyalties to a close friend or something like that is what they're imagining. But in a society like the United States right now, where sure, we kind of hide our political affiliations based on what context we're in, because it's not like I'm going to make a lasting, enduring, deeply meaningful connection because I'm on the same side as another person, which maybe I will. But if the enemies are evil and massive and, and there's an undercurrent of resistance and, and you want to forge a meaningful bond with someone in a really repressed area, you might say, oh, I'm actually against the regime. And then that would form a bond. So there's greater incentive, there's greater maybe social reward for um, confessing that you're against the regime. And so this one isn't quite as obvious to me because I would guess that people would be suspicious and that surveillance would erode social trust. So I would guess that people would be less likely to reveal their ultimate allegiances, um, but that will, be, that will be drawn out a little bit more as we go through. So the setting of this research, as the title mentions, is Communist Poland. Their information on surveillance comes from previously classified police re records of who what secret police officer was stationed where. They also use novel data coming from a trade union that staged protest. They measure individual acts of resistance using records of non-compliance with voluntary Saturday work. That's an important concept of the difference between protest and sabotage that we'll get to later. Um, and so they use this non-compliance with voluntary Saturday work as a proxy for sabotage. And then they use number of protests as a proxy, obviously, for protests. Within Poland, they're focusing on the Silesia region, which is in the south of Poland. And even within Silesia, they're focusing on Upper Silesia. And this data is from 1945, the end of World War II, to 1989. So just to give the results in the beginning, they use a two-way fixed effects panel model and find an additional secret police officer is correlated with a 0.09 standard deviation increase in protests but a 0.07 standard deviation decline in sabotage. So that means that for every additional secret police officer, they find it, uh, statistically significant evidence that the amount of protest increases, but with every additional officer, they find that sabotage decreases. So protest is going up, sabotage is going down. That's interesting, we'll break that down later. In order to determine that the relationship is causal beyond some of the um, panel models that they use or the, um, yeah, the two-way fixed effects panel model that they use, they use a causal inference design. They use instrumental an instrumental variable design to make sure that this relationship is causal and not just in association. Um, we'll get into instrumental variables in a minute. So this is what they state as being novel about their research design, right? We, we always want to build on research. We never want to pretend like we are living on an island in our research. We stand on the shoulders of giants if we're able to see any further at all. But you always want to put something new. You want to generate new knowledge, new information. That's the point of doing research like this. So they have three points of the novelty of their research, the importance of it. Number one, they're studying a previously untapped reserve of research, um, physical surveillance as a form of repression. There's a lot of research on physical repression, physical violence used by the state as a means to repress a citizenry, but there's not as much on physical surveillance. Specifically in Poland in this area, they say that they're using a database of secret police records that were just made unclassified. Secondly, about what's new, what they do, they offer new theoretical mechanisms bolstered by quantitative and qualitative data about why they think physical surveillance increases protests but decreases sabotage. Uh, whenever you have these causal inference things that, whenever you have a causal relationship, you don't want to just say cause, but there usually be an exploration that there's kind of a running joke that 
the causal inference part is really, really rigorous and you go into so much depth and you have it checked and it makes sense and the math, the model that you're using is really robust. But then when it comes to the mechanisms, it's a little, eh, no, we don't need to put as much effort in the mechanism. So that's kind of just a general um, running joke in some causal inference research. So they explore the mechanisms, why they say or how they say surveillance increases protest but decreases sabotage third and finally they confront an influential hypothesis by lickbach and scott that repression limits protests but increases sabotage so the very opposite of what they are arguing here so let's talk about these terms definitions and measurements of surveillance and resistance physical surveillance can include quote following and monitoring of targets, opening correspondence, eavesdropping, and use of informants. Therefore, surveillance constitutes a distinct form of state repression compared with alternative nonviolent forms of repression such as detentions, censorship, or internet restrictions, end quote. So, as I mentioned earlier, repression is this big, broad thing, and so if you really want to make something... Um, specific and make it measurable you need to be as specific as you can about um, what you're talking about so physical surveillance is what we're using here and that was the definition they use physical surveillance is nonviolent. importantly they lay out that the common knowledge and the research so far again the common knowledge and the research so far is that physical violence reduces resistance because it instills fear and it anticipates and mutes collective action they argue that these are legitimate channels that these make sense they don't doubt that these happen but fear and anticipation of collective action or increased costs of collective action are outstripped by number one the generation of anger and number two the incentives to reveal true loyalties so we'll talk more about the true loyalties later but they say that the anger drives protest more than the fear limits protest go into more detail on the two common hypotheses that they're countering again instilling fear increasing costs of collective action are the two main things they're coming up against so imagine in the united states all you need to do to protest is to create a facebook group and people can rsvp they know where it's going to be they know when it's going to be they know whether or not um, there's going to be I don't know snacks there or something or where you should meet or what the ending time is going to be you know i've been on one where um there was a lot of questions about oh is the local government gonna uphold a what is it called a curfew um and so there's a lot of open discussion you know oh there's gonna be a curfew oh there's not gonna be a curfew but it's all on this public site of facebook um very low cost you know you can rsvp and just not show up and it's not a big deal um, but if you were in another country like Poland between 1945 and 1989, and there's going to be a protest, first of all, there's not these means of social media, obviously. Um, but then also there's going to be a lot greater cost because what if you get caught going to that protest? What if you get caught planning the protest? Then you're going to be in trouble. And then you can't just use your thumbs to plan it. You have to maybe send letters. You have to intentionally meet up with people. So in both the punishment and out how much you have to go out of your way, there are increased costs for enacting protests. And the general argument is that physical surveillance increases these costs, makes it only harder, which limits or lessens how much people protest given physical surveillance. They go into more detail about their argument that surveillance increases anger and anger increases propensity to protest. Next hypothesis is still a bit um, difficult for me to fully wrap my mind around and get on board with about um, physical surveillance gives incentive for people to reveal their truest loyalties. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like given the situation and my knowledge of informants um, and not just theoretically, but reading a lot of stories and histories about what it looks like to live in a heavily repressed state or country. Um, your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your children are could be informants. And so if you were to declare, I'm against the regime, 
First, there is incentive not to do that, given the context that there are informants. And second, who would believe you even if you did that? You know, if you said that, it could easily be a spy. It could easily be someone just trying to pass an initial litmus test in order to get one step further and then get deeper information. And so, um, again, the authors make the point that they have a lot of substantive knowledge in this area, specifically within the context of Poland which I don't quite have as much of or nearly how much they do. So maybe this makes more sense in this context. But from some of my reading and just even my thinking here, it seems like um, there wouldn't be more incentive to share your true loyalties than to significantly hide your truest loyalties. Um, so their argument is that it increases incentive to share your loyalties. So um, what they say, and we go into more detail, what they would respond is that the way that you show your loyalty is through protest. And so maybe more people are not interested in sharing their loyalties than people who are interested in sharing their loyalties. But even the people who are, how do you do that? You do that through protest. And so even the small amount of people maybe who need to reveal their greatest loyalties will use protest as the means of doing that by doing a strike, by going on a hunger march, by ending work or something like that. So that as a means, as a litmus test to showing your loyalty would result in protest, would make sense that protests would go up. So I understand that, that angle on it for sure. They give a history of Poland at this time after World War II was taken over. After World War II, Poland was taken over by the Soviet Union. An oppressive regime was installed. It's really, really remarkable to hear the story of Poland. It doesn't... I didn't learn that much of it until my senior year of college, reading an author, Czesław Miloš, a Nobel, author, Nobel Prize winning author in literature. Really, really great author, but he talks about the Warsaw Uprising and how Poland, being right in the middle there around Eastern Europe was terrorized by Nazi Germany for a while. Um, the Warsaw Uprising was pretty horrible and the Soviets just waiting for the local resistance army to be tired out by the Nazi army or to do some of the fighting for them and then coming in later. And so um, the point being that Poland was quite terrorized on both sides by Nazi Germany and then for a longer period of time by the Soviet Union. And so in Poland, after the end of World War II, the Soviet Union installed a rigorous secret police organization. Um, and that was that's key part of any totalitarian state, autocratic state, um, specifically in the Eastern Bloc. Um, Soviet Union was really known for having an extensive network of spies, of informants. And in Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, it, he goes into a lot of detail about how this was carried out, what the impacts on the populace was, which I'll talk about later. Um, but in general, the history of Poland is that it was taken over by the Soviet Union. There were secret police installed until 1989. They were overthrown. Importantly, they note that this is a case of repression and resistance in a single setting and that you need to look elsewhere if you want agorists and get studies. In other words, this is not the place that you're going to look and solve the repression dissent puzzle because it's one place, one time, again, will get really valuable and really unique information, but you can't run away from this saying, you know, oh, I'm going to, when I become an autocratic state, I'm actually going to lessen one secret police officer so protest goes down and then I'm going to increase somehow so sabotage goes down. You know, it's not, and you're not going to get a definitive fully generalizable result from this study in particular. And th that's looked at more in their concluding generalizability section. Um, so they show that Upper Silesia is a representative case. It's actually quite remarkable how representative it seems based on the information they provide. It has similar demographics, similar wealth as the rest of the nation, similar union enrollment, and similar police population as the rest of the country. So it seems to be not only a place that happens to have access to plenty of records, but also a place that's quite representative of Poland as a whole at the time. In terms of measurement, we have some really important um, variables that have been defined. So we have surveillance, we have protest, we have sabotage, so you can't just define it specifically. You need to find a way to measure it. How are you going to operationalize it? So they measure physical surveillance 
and by the number of officers per year and municipality from 1945 to 1989. So the records offer very comprehensively, not all secret police officers, but they show a map where they're able to map out where the secret police officers were located, both by um, city, I want to get that right, um, both by city and municipality. So they have a good idea of how many are in each each city in general. For resistance, for protests, they geocode all protests from 1980 to 1986. They get the data from an archival source and note any mention of protest, and it was generally protests that were in line with the Solidarity Movement, which was a a unionization. It was a um, anti-communist movement, but it was a pro-labor movement that I don't know tons about. I've just done did a little bit in a presentation that senior year of college where we were reading a lot of um, or some Polish literature. So I'm not the most familiar, but Solidarity does figure prominently in the overthrowing of the Soviet Union's control within Poland and eventually becoming a more of a democratic place. So that's protest. Now, sabotage. Sabotage we didn't touch on much earlier, so I'm going to spend some time on it now. I find this one quite interesting. So in the context of this scope in Poland, they get at sabotage by looking at Saturday work. So Saturday work was set up as a means of catching up on lagging production. So in a lot of these countries that are have just been in a war, government is in shambles, they're not the most productive. And so what, what happens if we can't get it done in five days, we'll just work six. And it was cast as voluntary. It's like, oh, everyone, you know, feel free to show up to Saturday work if you'd like to. But it's kind of like, you know, when your coach says, oh, we're having extra Saturday practice, you don't have to come. But you really do have to come and you'll be punished if you do not come. Same in this context. So if you did not show up to Saturday work, that was seen as a form of sat uh, as sabotage. If you shirked your Saturday work, that was seen as a form of sabotage. If you were unproductive at your Saturday work, that was a form of sabotage and subversion. So they measure sabotage using archival data and records that were kept by um, the Polish government or the Soviet Union government at that time. And so they operationalize sabotage by looking at the per capita value of Saturday work per year uh, within the different cities and municipalities that they're dealing with. So the lower the value, the more sandbagging, the more sabotaging there is, the more um, slacking off there is, missing Saturday work, form of sabotage. It's not the only kind of sabotage that there was, but it is a means of getting at that variable that they're describing of sabotage. They use a panel model. The model they use to test these hypotheses is a panel model to answer the question, does physical surveillance spark or hinder anti-regime resistance? In this model, they include both community and time fixed effects, which are important because they control for culture, geography, timing of protests, other confounders that could get in there, types of population that are there. Um, they give a whole list of it, but those are just a couple of things that could be correlated with resistance and therefore would be throwing off the unmediated cause of surveillance on protest or on sabotage. Next, they turn to using an instrumental variable design, or before that, they give a couple results. So in the results, Without controls, they find a positive correlation between the number of secret police officers and the number of protests. Also, the number of secret police officers going up means the n amount of sabotage is going down. So, given their panel model, they do find that physical surveillance increases protests but decreases sabotage. Next, to verify those results and to make sure that they are causal, they turn to an instrumental variable design in order to verify those findings. An instrumental variable design, um, and these are always just so fun, so clever in how you can get at causal inference. So before we've talked in general about causal inference, about selection bias, and last week we talked about um, regression discontinuity as a means of isolating causal effects. So this is another method that's used is called instrumental variable. And so it's a clever way of getting around certain problems of selection bias. Lotteries are a great example of an instrumental variable. 
So in causal inference, the ideal, like in medical trials, the ideal to isolate the effect of a cause is, and it's important, some of that language that, again, we're going to do a series on the future about causal inference, um, but you're never looking at the causes of effects. You're always looking at the effects of causes. And so in order to get the effect of a cause, like in medical treatments and medical trials, we're looking for a large representative and randomized groups. That way, we're able to get at the cause. And so the example of an instrumental variable that first comes to mind comes from Josh Angris again, Nobel award-winning economist at MIT from Mostly Harmless Econometrics. Um, and I remember my professor said it was a really easy read, that Angris makes it super accessible, and that the cover has peaceful clouds on it. So I was excited to get into the book. I thought maybe it'd be thin, um, but it is a thick book. It is a difficult read if you're not really familiar with a lot of formulas, with a lot of proofs, with even a lot of notation and regression modeling. And so it was quite, it was as, as accessible as it possibly could be. And my professor is very, she went to Caltech, um, methods, methods, methods. She's very quantitative focused. So her mind is just brilliant in the way it works like that. Uh, but mine coming from a literature background did not make the most immediate sense. But nevertheless, Angris does a great job. I think some of his YouTube content is very helpful to get the initial visualization and intuition of what causal inference looks like if you are interested in just getting into um, a start of it. I would start there, not necessarily with the book. So an instrumental variable design would be really helpful for a question like this. What impact does military service have on lifetime earnings of a person? Now, we cannot make a naive comparison and conclude and just compare people in the military with people not in the military. And military service is not just an isolated event. We have to think about selection bias because not everyone who joins the military is identical to those who do not join the military. Just think about it. The military is majority men, but our population is about equal between the sexes. People who join the military and may be their best option and don't have great prospects. I'm not aware of anyone who was in, maybe a couple people maybe, who had you know great Wall Street jobs and said, you know, I need to get into the army right now. Army people tend to be younger too. It's a lot harder if you're 35 and try to go into the army, um, unless you're the older guy in Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, and then additionally, people who join the army may be less risk averse than the rest of the population. So whatever the impacts of these are, whether it means higher income or lower income, these groups are not created exactly equally. And again, we're facing selection bias, we're comparing apples and oranges. But what if there are a way to randomly place people in the military or not? And maybe you're seeing what I'm getting at. Because that would be a crazy life altering experiment, that can happen, but it can happen by a military draft. So what Angris does, rather than doing a naive comparison, rather than forcing people who don't wanna be in the army to be in the army, to go into the armed forces, he looks at Vietnam draft data. At, he uses the draft as an instrument that essentially, that randomly assigns people to a group, a treatment group, military, or a non-treatment group, not military. So the draft was only for men, so that has to be taken into account. Um, and I think it still is only for men. I remember signing up for that when I turned 18. It's kind of a fun, eh, maybe that's not the right word to use, but it seems like a bit of a coming in of age thing, you know, that I don't, isn't my immediate reality, but it is interesting. It's something that I don't think about often that I am in the, in the hat for the draft if that ever were to happen again. But anyway, so once you use this instrumental variable, once you use the draft as a means of separating into treatment group and non-treatment group, a control group, then you're able to more accurately assess what the effect is of the cause of military service. And so that's a really classic example of an instrumental variable design. You're essentially trying to look for, okay, here's my ending effect, my research question, and I want to find something that somehow puts people into equal, equal propensity to be in a group or not in a group. And then you make sure that the groups are balanced, obviously, and they will be. 
or they are in this context at least. Um, but it's very, you have to have a lot of substantive knowledge in order to determine what would be a good instrumental variable in a particular research design. It's also used in education with um, school lotteries and stuff. I know it's been used there too. So in this context, they use the assignment of priests by the Catholic Church as an instrument. A lot of information in this comes from Zurich, 2009, who appears to have put together a really thorough report on the corrupting of the priesthood in Poland. The priests in Poland, I believe, is a Catholic nation at the time. And so the way that it works is that you become a priest, you know, and then the Catholic Church assigns you a place to be a priest. So the priests were actually corrupted. It's kind of crazy. They were recruited to the regime and asked to report information that was relevant about underground networks, even using confessional time uh, to, to ascertain information about that they can use to blackmail people. And so very creative. Again, you need a lot of substantive knowledge to determine this as an effective instrument. Um, but they think that this, the corruption of priests, is a good instrument. And here's why. They go through IV. You have to go through a couple assumptions. Um, and I always love when people lay out assumptions because it's like, okay, there's no pretense. This is what my argument depends on. So the two here are, I've never said it like this. I've said exogenous, but exogeneity and excludability. So exogeneity, this is used to answer the potential problem of selection bias. If priests were intentionally sent to more corrupted places or places that had more protest, or if the priests intentionally selected themselves into more or less resistant areas, then the correlation wouldn't be natural. People would be selecting themselves into different groups for a myriad of reasons, and we wouldn't get a balanced group. Maybe one would be a lot more um, correlated to protest, one would be a lot less, but nevertheless, we wouldn't have equally priests to be equally likely to be sent anywhere that the amount of protests in a region is not correlated at all with um, where corruptible priests are sent to so they argue that this is not the case that the catholic church was unaware of local corruption that they faced a really high cost to ascertain whether or not a priest was corruptible or not and so they think and this seems good seems pretty um, reliable to me that that the assignment of priests was exogenous that priests did not select themselves into certain groups and predispose the results to go a certain way so like going back to the vietnam example the catholic church would be like the draft and the priests would be the um the young men assigned to go fight in the war that people aren't selecting themselves into, but the draft is dividing it about 50-50 or making, making different outcomes equally likely. So that's the exogeneity assumption, the excludability assumption. Um, in order for an instrumental variable to work, you also need the assumption that corrupted priests only affect protests through recruitment of other priests. And I think their own surveillance would be included here. So the idea in an instrumental variable design is that one that the instrument, say on the left, is predicting or is not correlated with this next thing. So the Catholic Church assigning priests and priests are in the middle and then going from priests to protest activity. And so the only way that the priests are affecting, or sorry, it would be priests to surveillance to protest. If the priests are affecting protests in any other way but through surveillance, it fails the excludability assumption. Because if they are, then we're not isolating surveillance if it did happen to be true that the priests, um, I don't know, were extra problematic, were going around attacking people, were really damaging to the local community, incited a lot of fights and protests and invited it, then that would be its own, uh, have its own causal relationship outside of just through surveillance. And so they find this using archival data um, and validate this assumption that the priests were not going around causing protests in any other way but through their surveillance and the recruiting of other priests to surveil. So that's the excludability assumption. So we went over the base model, the panel model results here, the IV results. They use a two 
say two-stage least squares regression. There's another thing we can go into an episode more detail on causal inference um, and about regression in this way. Um, essentially, because there's two stages in an IV design, there's the instrument, then there's the um, cause and the, the treatment, and then there's the outcome. You essentially do two regressions in order to account for those two differences. So you do it on the first one, you find what is the correlation between um, priests being sent to an area and the surveillance that's going on. You want it to be almost not correlated at all so that you're getting essentially at only the final stage of, um, of the, the cause there, the treatment effect. Um, anyways, they finally turn to the mechanism, or they find the same results in the IV design. Um, protest goes up and sabotage goes down. So finally, they turn to the mechanisms, which is something we've come across before. As I mentioned, that you don't want to just find the cause, but it also makes for interesting, a little less rigorous conversation to consider theoretically and quantitatively and qualitatively as much as you can, the mechanisms by which the cause is creating the effect. So in order to check the first pathway, that surveillance causes anger, they conducted 20 semi-structured interviews and collected 62 testimonies. So now they're getting into some qualitative data and research in this area. They find that anger to be is the most prominent emotion in the interviews. Uh, but then I asked, just because anger is there, does that mean that it caused protest? They, they ask the same question. They admit it's not like that is a novel thought of mine. They argue that the mechanism for... Um, they argue that it is. They cite two people that they interviewed who directly link anger to causing the protest. Um, but they, they go into a little more detail of it, and I think some of that is um, up for interpretation. They argue that the mechanism of admitting loyalties makes sense using protests or strikes as a sort of litmus test for people to show their loyalties. I still think, again, I understand what they're saying here, that protest is a means of showing loyalty. And so because people even a little bit more than normal would want to show their loyalty then even more than normal people would want would protest in order to show their loyalty i still wonder about just an overwhelming physical surveillance and police force and the more informants there are does it really increase the incentive to prove that you're loyal and so that one again it might be substantive it might be unique to poland at this time but that one that one does not come through as clearly to me personally they include the paper with the generalizability which is really important you know it's kind of unstated when you're talking about american politics oh wow how would this be relevant you know how would this certain candidate and this certain ideology be relevant to another context so it's unstated but context like this about repression dissent physical surveillance, how generalizable is it, is an important question. And so they they argue that the scope that they're focusing on, the type of surveillance, must be, in order for it to be similar and comparable, would need to be overt, comprehensive, and continuous. Overt, or out in the open, because otherwise people wouldn't be upset, right? People would have no idea to be angry if they don't know that surveillance is going on. So it has to be overt, out in the open to a degree for people to even protest about it, um, for it to be physical surveillance. Number two, has to be pervasive. It has to affect areas of your life that matter. It must be more than just out there, another group of people, but it needs to be pervasive. Um, yeah, more than just, it has to have political prominence, the surveillance, and it has to be widespread enough, um, but something that it has to be something large and recognizable for you to get angry about or for you to recognize it. Finally, number three, it must be continuous. It can't be a short-term blip on the radar. Oh, this one time in this one little town, someone got arrested because of a, a spy. No, it has to be continuous. It has to be a constant, ever-present reality in the mind of those suffering under the surveilling regime. They also verify this by looking at a Department of State database that keeps track of surveillance throughout the world. They find language of overtness, comprehensiveness, and continuousness 
um, in those reports to be similar to what they're talking about. And so they feel accurate about how they're talking about physical surveillance with how the Department of State talks about it, how physical surveillance is understood. And it doesn't seem to be unusual. This isn't a unique instance of what state-sanctioned surveillance looks like. It's pretty common, not only at the time, but even in the world today, it happens in different nations. So they finished with a discussion on how relevant these findings are for today's world. Um, I mean, physical surveillance, at least in the United States, isn't happening as much. They say throughout the world, it still is. And our understanding of physical surveillance in or can our understanding of physical surveillance in Silesia province in Poland from 1959-1989 inform any understanding of digital surveillance in the US? Digital surveillance is not as overt, it's often hidden. They argue it's less comprehensive, but I'm not so sure about that because I maybe in some states where it's a little less sophisticated and but I think in the US it seems quite comprehensive that they know your searches they know all this stuff they argue that you can just get offline and avoid the surveillance which is true but i don't know how many people aren't able to completely exclude themselves from um online life through having some sort of profile through um yeah just even the using the internet even though not everyone has access to the internet even just using it and having some sort of um cookie trail there so that's how they conclude the article I have a couple conclusions. These are mine for whatever they're worth. I think they're worth something because I'm sharing them. Um, but I would be curious how a psychologist would interact with some of the findings here. As I mentioned a lot earlier in its dominant thesis, they argued that it is anger, not fear, that's driving the protests. But anger is a secondary emotion and fear is the primary emotion. The two primary emotions from my understanding are love and fear, not love and hate. But anger is secondary to fear and so yes they obviously feel very different but this is a seems to be a commonly held conception within the psychological and even um the ther therapy community therapy community of therapists um so i wonder if they would argue that sure it is anger but it's actually rooted in fear and how how the authors would even discuss that given the the huge chasm between their field of political science in poland and the 50s to 80s and current psychological research. So that just came to mind while I was looking at it. I would be interested too in if there are, um, I know that they control for time fixed effects, but I'd be interested in how long-term surveillance causes a lot of loss of trust and even people change their response to authority. I think of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago again, is that he talks about it wasn't one fell swoop that that crushed his people. It was a slow grinding down that there were a lot of courageous people early on that stood up against the injustices that they saw and the surveillance that there was and spoke up against it. But over time, things really changed and that there weren't protests anymore. People, um, I don't know if people did or didn't sabotage as defined by this article, but I'd be interested in what are the long-term effects? Do people, is are police officers associated with more protests in the beginning, but after 15 years of oppression, people kind of give up and, and there's a lot less protests. And so overall it drops, but in the short time period that studied, it increases. So that's something that came to mind. Uh, going back to the incentive to admit one's loyalty, I wonder if there's some sort of learning effect because sure, it could be anyone, but you would learn who are the people who, you know, go into the office the most. I, I would assume that some spies gain a reputation for themselves. And so maybe people would be more, more alert to that and would be better at sharing their loyalties with other people. And so I'd be just interested in a learning effect there over time. Final idea for me is the differences. They account for some cultural differences. But I'd be interested in the differences between cultures in how anger is experienced and even how much anger is experienced. A research professor at UCI, Davin Phoenix, he researches the role of emotions in politics, paying most specific attention to anger in American politics and um, looks at different demographic groups, um, 
from where I've heard about him, he focuses on African-American experience of anger in politics and how if you look at different demographics in the United States, you know, white people experience anger very differently and to different extents in politics compared to African-Americans. And there's probably good reasons for that. But I would be interested in a more diverse country with a different history of state oppression, how how anger would work within different groups. Even if there is a common enemy, um, I'd wonder how different political consciousness have, have been formed. And so maybe in a more diverse setting, I'd be interested in the role of anger in protests and even in sabotage. Those are my thoughts in total. Thank you to these researchers for putting together this article. They used a lot of novel data sources and implemented creative research designs in order to quantitatively get at an empirical question that is not easy to get to. A lot of times with American electoral studies, it's obviously not perfect. It's obviously not easy, but a lot of the data is pretty it's cut and dry it's pretty reliable it's been used a lot it's you can download it in spreadsheets but um, hats off to these researchers for going into depth on some of these new databases and operationalizing ideas in ways that are measurable and so appreciate their work there thank you so much again for listening to this episode of the political science report go ahead and follow me on twitter at polysci report next week we get into the top three of the six articles with the highest attention score, and we'll be reading The Long-Term Effects of Oppression, Prussia, Political Catholicism, and the Alternative für Deutschland. Again, on repression, I didn't plan this one exactly that way, um, but we're going to be staying on the subject, so whatever you learned in this one, I'm sure will be useful for the next one. Thank you so much again, and hope to see you next week. (laughs) 